Yosemite's in the soul. What a perfect metaphor for the towering spiritual presence of the diminutive preacher who arrived in San Francisco in the spring of 1860. Thomas Starr King lived in California for only four years. Yet when he died at the age of 39, the legislature adjourned for three days. The flag was flown at half-mast, and and immense crowds poured through the Unitarian Church to see the young minister lying in state. On the day of his funeral, cannons fired in his honor, and 20,000 mourners lined the funeral route. In those few short years, Thomas Starr King had become a symbol for all that was best about the state. Starr King's roots, though, were here in New England. This is where he grew up and spent most of his life. And as with so many 19th century Unitarians, you don't need to dig very far to find his Concord connections. (laughs) King's father, also named Thomas, was a shoemaker with a gift for public speaking. In those days, Unitarian ministers were expected to have a college education and a divinity school degree, but Universalist ministers had no such requirements. Thomas King became an itinerant minister and then was called to a settled ministry at the Universalist Church of Charlestown, Massachusetts. Because the father was called Thomas, everyone called the son Star, which was his mother's maiden name. The Dictionary of American Biography of 1946 had had this to say about Star King. He gathered knowledge from every side with the spontaneity and delight of a child at play. Having an agile and retentive mind, he absorbed the contents of books with great rapidity. From his earliest years onward, he captivated all he met. A generous disposition, sunny temperament, and almost rollicking mirthfulness were also part of his attractiveness. Star King was a gifted student, destined for Harvard. But his father died when he was 15, leaving him to support his mother and five younger siblings. He worked for a time as a teacher, then as a clerk at the Charlestown Navy Yard. And all the while, he continued his studies through private mentors, public lectures, sermons, and books. He tutored himself in Latin, Greek, French, Spanish, Italian, and German. He had inherited his father's gift for oratory, and when he was 21, he was called to the pulpit in in the Charlestown church that had been his father's. His fame as a gifted preacher soon spread, and well-known Unitarian ministers were among his admirers. A very troubled Unitarian congregation in Boston was in need of a new minister, and they offered King the job, despite his lack of official Unitarian credentials. It was a controversial move, but their gamble paid off. King served the Hollis Street Church for 11 years, during which time it completely regained its financial health and the congregation grew to five times its former size. In 1850, Harvard awarded King an honorary Master of Arts degree. That same year, Star King preached right here in First Parish at Concord. In a letter to a friend, he noted that Ralph Waldo Emerson had been at the service and that he had taken tea with him in the evening. Enjoyed seeing him as always, he wrote. In another letter, he wrote, Alcott comes to see me often, and we have gloriously muddy talks. He thinks I am a splendid fellow, and the way I pour mysticism into him is a caution. (laughs) 
He then quoted a couple of Franz and Alcott's latest Orphic sayings for his friend's amusement. King received a pre-publication review copy of Henry David Thoreau's Walden. His lengthy, appreciative review appeared in the Christian Register in August 1854. We suppose its author does not reverence many things which we reverence, he wrote, but this fact has not prevented our seeing that he has a reverential, tender, and devout spirit at bottom. Playful humor and sparkling thought appear on almost every page. Rarely have we enjoyed a book more. King was too young to have participated in the meetings of the Transcendental Club, yet even as a teen, he was reading what they were reading. As he grew to adulthood, he became friends with many of its members. He was such a gifted scholar and such a powerful speaker. How strange it is that so few of us are familiar with him today. Or perhaps not so strange. King's rhetoric was distinctly different from that of the quintessential transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau. I doubt if in the landscape there can be anything finer than a distant mountain range, wrote Henry Thoreau. They are a constant elevating influence. King would have readily agreed with this sentiment. In fact, he became so famous for his writing about mountain landscapes that two mountain peaks were, bear his name, one in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and the one that Howard mentioned in California's Yosemite. But for King, the elevating influence of the mountains led not to pithy aphorisms nor to Emerson's mystical sense of the divine as the oversoul, the eternal one, the wise silence, but instead to elaborate descriptive passages interspersed with poetry, biblical quotations, and praise for a powerful, loving, paternal God. King's writing style was much admired in his day, but it is not well suited to ours. He elaborates each point so extensively and in such complex structure that it's extremely difficult to find short passages that illustrate his style. But I have found two from 1860 that will do. I'm just going to grab a drink of water. The first one is from a sermon called Lessons from the Sierras. The Sierra runs along the whole eastern line of our state. Nay, it stretches southward through all Mexico and Central America. It is part of the Andes that wall the western coast of the southern continent. It ends in the cliffs of Cape Horn, washed by the fury of the cold Antarctic waves. Its line is closed on the north in the spires of rock and ice that spring near Bering's Straits. All the way along, from polar seas through the equator to polar seas again, it wears such beauty seen from distant points The glory of morning, the richer glory of evening, breaks and dies upon it in hues which no artist can ever counterfeit on every cloudless day. Is not part of the object of this opulence to lead those who see or contemplate it to bow before the riches of God's art and goodness? This next one is from an article about Yosemite that King sent east for publication in the Boston Evening Transcript. 
The patches of luxuriant meadow with their dazzling green and the grouping of the superb firs 200 feet high that skirt them and that shoot above the stout and graceful oaks and sycamores through which the horse path winds are delightful rests of sweetness and beauty amid the threatening awfulness like the threads and flashes of melody that relieve the towering masses of Beethoven's harmony. The Ninth Symphony is the Yosemite of music. (laughs) And here I will insert my own analogy. King does with words what landscape paintings by Albert Bierstadt do with paint. I hope you all can see this beautiful um, reproduction. It may be no coincidence, Star King's influence brought Bierstadt to the Sierras, and he stayed at King's house while in California. We have Victor Curran to thank for enhancing our contemplation of the Sierras this morning with this marvelous Bierstadt reproduction. Thank you so much, Victor. (laughs) In the decade leading up to King's arrival, the rush to California had been for material gain, gold, was the driving force. For those who were traveling overland from the east, the Sierra Mountains were a terrifying, life-threatening barrier, an obstruction in the path to California's golden promise. It took a man like King, who had been steeped in New England transcendentalism, to see them instead as a source of inspiration to draw people's attention to the state's astonishing wealth of natural beauty. King's nature writing in a book called The White Hills, Their Legends, Landscapes, and Poetry, had already given him a prominent place on the literary map. Now his descriptions of the Sierras made Easterners long to see them. And just as importantly, his words made the people of California suddenly more aware more appreciative, more reverent. When the Civil War began a year after Star King's arrival in California, many in the state had pro-Confederacy leanings. The passionate pro-Union speeches that King delivered up and down the coast countered this tendency and made California a critical player in the Northern cause. For him, the Civil War was a battle with a clear moral purpose. Slavery was an abomination, and he was impatient for a declaration of emancipation. Oh, that the president would soon speak that electric sentence, inspiration to the loyal North, doomed to the traitorous aristocracy whose cup of guilt is full. Let him say that it is a war of mass against class, of America against feudalism, of the schoolmaster against the slave master, of workmen against the barons, of the ballot box against the barracoon. This is what the struggle means. Proclaim it so, and what a light breaks through our leaden sky. The ocean wave rolls then with the impetus and weight of an idea. Only a year or two earlier, an orator would have lost all credibility among whites in California for seeming to side with blacks. It is a testament to King's charisma that he drew enthusiastic crowds wherever he went, despite his abolitionist beliefs. 
King devoted much of his energy in the last years of his life to rallying support for the Union and raising money for the United States Sanitary Commission, a relief agency for the care of wounded and sick soldiers that had been organized by his good friend and fellow Unitarian, Henry Bellows. As a result of King's efforts, California contributed more to that cause than any other state. King knew he was using up his strength, but he soldiered on, speaking to crowds that gathered in the thousands to hear him, until pneumonia and diphtheria cut his life short. He died a true hero. His legacy lived on through California's contributions to the Union cause, through the strong cultural connections between Northern California and New England, and through America's newfound appreciation for the grand landscapes of the West. For King, exploring spectacular landscapes was not only a joy in itself, but a way to explore the inner life. He saw the Sierras not as a barrier, not as a source of mineral wealth to be exploited, but as a constant source of inspiration that could lead to ever greater spiritual heights. King was in love with the world, which he explored through every channel available to him. He embraced music, science, mathematics, religion, philosophy, visual arts, and literature. Each new discovery, each work of art, each scientific fact was a way to draw closer to a truer understanding of God. Star King was that rare public person who seems to have come into the world exactly when the world needed him most. His sonorous voice, far-reaching grasp of ideas, and engaging personality gave him a unique opportunity to influence the people of California at the most formative moment in the development of that state. If you're lucky, you may have a chance to visit California's Sierras yourself someday. Perhaps you already have. But it isn't necessary to go there to find what Star King found, a delicate wildflower that has pushed its way through asphalt to bloom in the summer sun can be as potent a symbol of nature's beauty and resilience as a giant sequoia. A towering white cloud or ocean waves crashing against a craggy shore can have an elevating influence as surely as a snow-capped peak. The power to see it lies within you. Let the wonders of this world lift you above the spiritual flats. Abandon the dry, droughty, and barren moral ground. Find majestic landscapes for your heart. Explore the Yosemite of your soul. <laughs>